Welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and I would like to introduce you to industry professionals and people who successfully made their path to the video game industry. I hope that you will enjoy the podcast and get useful tips that will bring you closer to achieving your dreams. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Welcome to the GameDev.TV Podcast. Manesh, how are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. I'm doing good. Awesome. Well, so Manesh is a lead programmer, general game maker, and audio guy at Us Two Games. He's made games like Al- Alba, Wildlife Adventure, Monument Valley, Lands End, and more. So, Manesh, can you explain a little bit more about what you do and what you're up to, and we'll go from there? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I work at Us Two Games right now as a lead programmer. Um, I've been with Us Two for around 12 years, something like that, and for about 10 of those, been making games. Um, I started off doing Flash. Uh, which I kind of learned through Unity and ActionScript, and that's what I started doing at Us2. Originally not working on games, but doing kind of UI and normal digital app type stuff. And at some point during that journey, I decided to make the shift over to games, which was originally playing with things like Flash and Hacks and that kind of technology, which I think some of it is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, realizing that Unity was this really, really cool technology that's sort of emerging at that time. And so, switched over to using Unity, made the first game that I ever made called Blip Blup, which was just before Monument Valley. I think not very many people played it. Um, mm. And soon after making Blip Blup and kind of figuring out how to use Unity, the next thing we made was Monument Valley. And that's probably the game that us two games is, might be best known for. And then since then, kind of continuing to make games and continuing to enjoy my time at us two games. It is the only company I've actually worked for, so I feel really privileged to have been able to work in the same place and kind of pick up all the skills that I've been able to just in that one place. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, kind of general game maker is what I like to refer to myself as, because even though programming is the main thing I do, I am really interested in just whatever it takes to make a game as good as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the main thing about game development for me too. It's like, I want to yeah. learn programming, but I want to learn all of it so that I can make oh, a great yeah. game. Yeah. So how did you get started with games and game development? Is there like a moment where you're like, I love this game and I want to make more games? Uh, it might be a cheesy answer, but it definitely started when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I grew yes. up being obsessed with games and, and playing them as a kid. I think the first gaming system I ever had wasn't even really a console. It, it was a PC. And that I, I, the way it was when I was a kid is that was a PC I had for years. So mm-hmm. I like squeezed every ounce of gaming, computing, learning that I could out of it. And I think my first kind of even toe dipped into programming was Quake C. So I grew oh, up wow, reading uh, Quake C. Oh, Quake C, okay. Quake C, which was like the modding language that I guess uh, id, probably Carmack and others came up with to allow people to easily mod and kind of look into uh, how Quake was made. And I remember just realizing that changing lines of code changed the game and it just blew my mind that, mm-hmm. that that's a person could have the ability to do that. I think the first thing I did was make the nail gun in Quake shoot rockets by changing the line of code. And I was like, right, this is it. Like, something has changed in my brain now. There's there's no going back. There is um, not. So it, it all kind of started there for me. Um, yeah, and then sort of going into college and university, I was really into the computing courses that we had. And uh, in university, actually, the degree I took was music technology software development. So it was kind of around 50% making music and... Uh, recording artists and that kind of stuff. And 50% was kind of touching the software development side of audio. Um, at some point, I think I was convinced that I was going to be a music producer, mm-hmm. but I was just so sidelined and obsessed by coding and 
the the ability to just tell a computer to do something and it does it was just so compelling to me that um i think that kind of took over my brain more than the whole idea of becoming a dj or a rock star or producer um i mean that wouldn't yeah. be bad <laughs> it wouldn't be bad yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy do you think because i've noticed there's like a lot of great programmers are also great musicians is there like a thing that correlates with that because usually the the programmer is more logical and the singer is more like creative so like i wonder if it makes you a better programmer or if it's just like this weird thing where programmers are just musicians because i'm i struggle with like music so i'm also struggling programming so i'm like i don't know if that's a thing or <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i wish i I'd, I'd like to be a great programmer let's I'm, I'm continuously working towards it and let's see um but i definitely i found that there was a lot of like music and music theory kind of is a mathematical discipline. And I remember approaching sequencing in an audio sequencer the same way I would any other kind of like very meticulous thing that I could write. I'm going to place these exactly on beat and I'm going to make sure every note that I place in the piano roll is exactly in key. And then I'm going to intentionally go in and move things slightly off so it sounds a bit unquantized. And I really like the, there's kind of probably a control freak inside every programmer. And yep. I feel like I can scratch that itch either through making music or through programming. Um, I have to say from some of the code I've seen, that's not true. <laughs> Just oh, really? saying. <laughs> he sees a lot of code every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. But yeah, so I'm curious, is that like perfectionist, that like wanting to make the song that good, is that like from curiosity, just control freak or like... Or you just, you understand it so much, you're like, this is where it's supposed to go and this is where it's got to go. Like, it just comes natural to you. Mm, I think for me, a lot of it is just the obsession with the act of creating. Where sometimes I'm not even thinking about what I want the end product to be. I just enjoy the act of creating so much and the act of iterating on something. And just like, the end goal is constantly moving. Because I'll, I'll do something that I probably thought was right. It ends up not being right, but something else comes out of it. And so I'm like... Fine, let me let the goalpost move, but I'm going to make sure that every step of the way I'm trying to create something that's like coming from me. And yeah. the, the best example I can think of that, that started for me when I was young, um, I did a lot of DIY with my dad growing up. So, okay. like, you know, we'd decorate stuff in the house and, you know, we would remodel the kitchen and all that stuff. And my dad was always keen on doing that himself and mm -hmm. teaching me to, like, you know, this is your home, you take care of it, make it as good as you can. And I think that was instilled in me from a young age and I, and I really appreciate that those experiences with him. So I feel like I approach everything I make with that. Like it doesn't matter if it's a client project or something that is my own idea or someone else's idea. It's like, I'm working on this thing. I'm going to do the best job I can of it. It doesn't matter how big or small my role is. My job is to do the best I can do. And I try and take that in, in everything I do. That's beautiful. Because I, I feel like a lot of people struggle with, I need to get it done the way I set out to do it. Like, I've done that where I'm like, I, need, I want mm -hmm. it to be like this. And it ends up not working out the way you want it to, but you're like, oh, I was supposed to get to this end goal, so now I'm either going to give up or just continue mm -hmm. going down this way where it's not going to be optimal or I'm going to be frustrated or burnt out. So it's, I'm, I'm glad your dad did that. And I, I think people need to more understand that the, the details matter and patience. Do you feel like you are always struggling to like get to a deadline or you're just like, when I'm done, I'm done? Um, I think through experience and through having done it enough times, I, I now know what it feels like to change my priority as the project goes on. Where at the beginning, it might be like 100% priority is make the coolest thing possible. Yeah. But then maybe the team grows and you're like, well, okay, it's not my own personal priority that's right at the top because I've got a really cool team around me. So yeah. it's like, what can the team make? And then the closer and closer you get to whatever the deadlines are, it's like, okay, well, of course it's important to make this thing good. 
but we need to stop working at some point and get it out. Yeah. Um, I'm thankfully most of the projects I've worked on at us too have been like the timescales have ranged from like you know nine months for the original Monument Valley to Alba. The last game took about two and a half years of development, so I've kind of had the taste of that range of development time. So I know what it feels like to be two years into a game and feel like okay, like oh, let's get this out, let's get it done to the best we can do, let's make the compromises that we do need to make that are really really difficult, but let's let's make them because it's more valuable to get the game out and get people playing it and feel that satisfaction than it would be, I think, to spend another two years struggling to try and get it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I don't want to spend out years and years and years doing something that could have been out like a year ago. Mm -hmm. So when you were learning when you were younger, was it challenging at first and how did you get through those challenges? I think that initially when I first looked at when I mentioned Quake C, I was just daunted by it because I hadn't seen anything mm -hmm. before. So my first reaction to that was something like, oh, well, that's too difficult. I don't think I can do that. Oh, wow. and, and I'm really glad that I, I kind of stuck with it. And then it was when I did a computing course in A-level, which in the, I don't know if you guys know about A-levels in the UK, but that's like age 17, 18, I think. And okay. we learned Turbo Pascal as a language. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I kind of got the grasp of using that, the first thing I did was try and make a clone of Snake, Snake on the old Nokia phones. Mm -hmm. And it was that point I was like, okay, I think I can do this. Like, I think I understand what it means to logically put together a structure in my head, a sequence of instructions, whatever that is, ask the computer to do it and hope that it's going to do the thing that I thought of. And that, that to me is that's the journey that I'm constantly going on is like, how, how frictionless can I make that journey of a thought in my head to being able to play something? Um, and it's, it's interesting that sometimes in that friction, you find something unexpected. Like, I don't even know if it's perfect to have a, a frictionless, like, okay, this is exactly what I thought, and that's exactly what I'm going to play. Because I also don't think that my ideas are great the first time, and I don't think anyone's are, right? And sometimes mm -hmm. it's in that act of creation and through that friction that you find stuff that's really cool. And I think that's why I come back to the original point of um, it's the process that I really, really love. Like, just the act of creation, the unpredictability of it, and sometimes the predictability from being experienced. That whole process is what I'm in love with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's also one of the similarities between music and games in terms of development. Like, yeah. you start with an idea, you play it, it doesn't look good. <laughs> then you change a few things. Yeah, that's why jamming is such a great activity, regardless of whether it's me. I mean, real-time jamming in games isn't really the same. Like, you have game jams and it's like a fixed period of time, whereas musicians can just, like, you know, the best jazz musicians just improvise. And they create music on the fly. I mean, maybe we could do the same with games one day. Who knows? Maybe. Could you imagine it? <laughs> just like great. you have to have like the engine and then the, the knowledge, and just be like, oh, we want a game. Boom, here it is. And you're like, whoa. Maybe that's the, that? that's the frictionless experience that musicians experience, where they just play stuff and music comes out immediately. Yeah. Like at the other end. That's magic to me. I'm like, I get what you're doing. I just, just wow. It's like beyond me. So I'm like, you're, you're, you're a god. You're a magician. You're, you're, you're something out of this world. But that, that I, sometimes it takes what years and years and years of practice, and sometimes it's just natural talent. Which talent's an interesting conversation. Like, how does it? Where does it come from? How does someone just understand things easily, and some people don't? So, uh, what would you say for people who struggle with programming at first? Who like, I'm doing it, and I just can't get it. Like, what, what would you tell them? I would say that when I've struggled with things like that in the past, it is to sometimes to, to stop 
and to evaluate what you're doing. And that is often the reason to do that is to identify your weakness and then to actually tackle that weakness by itself and really try and fix whatever it is that you're struggling with. So like someone, I don't know, I'll just pull an example out, like you yeah. know, a, a student program or something is struggling with their prototype and they're struggling with four or five systems at the same time and they can't make them all work together. And it's like the exercise for me would be, well, try and pick one of the things that you're really struggling with and really try and focus in on why that thing is giving you problems. Like certainly for me, starting with Flash, um, it was all in the 2D land, all in like screen space, UI, XY coordinates, and then jumping into the land of Unity without having done any kind of like 3D maths at all. I was just like, well, what is this Z-axis? How am I supposed to use it? I was so confused. And uh, I was just like, okay, I, it seems like I constantly come up against not understanding how to think in three axes. So I am gonna attack that and I'm gonna make sure I understand that as best as I can. So I think that's, and I still apply that now. When I come across anything that I don't fully understand, I'll try to stop and I'll be like, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna go and watch a bunch of videos and I'm gonna read exactly about this thing that I just don't feel comfortable with. And I won't stop until I feel comfortable with it because mm. it's in that comfort that then you can start to take on new challenges. Because I guess the challenge when you're making a prototype or a game is you're trying to make the game really good and you don't wanna be like, you know, oh, I don't know how to use this hammer like when I'm trying to build something, it's like using the hammer is a thing that should come to you really well. Then you can focus about what it is that you're trying to build. So I think that's that's what I would try to encourage people who might be struggling. It's like identify what you're struggling with and really focus in on that. And when yeah. I, I see that problem uh, constantly actually with people missing fundamentals and trying to learn in-depth concepts. Like uh, people who cannot even like build a simple game because they haven't even tried, they haven't studied that yet. They're trying to make, wow, they're trying to make an MMORPG, they're trying to make a, a MOBA GTA. or yeah. whatever game is popular at the time. Like, it's always an MMO or GTA, isn't it? It's one of those two. Yeah. Or Fortnite, lately. Yeah, Fortnite. Uh, I'm trying to make a, a Fortnite game. A Battle Royale. A yeah. little bit easier than the WoW, but yeah, still difficult. I, yeah, I mean, everything is easy when you compare to WoW. <laughs> True. Yeah, just don't make well. Yeah. <laughs> don't make well. I, w I would also add to that, just one more thing, is that in order to do that exercise of identifying your weakness, etc., I found that I'd need to put my ego aside um, in order to do that. Like sometimes I would re I'd be reluctant to do it because I think, ah, I'm, I've been doing this long enough. I, c I should be able to get this. I'm just going to like make it by on whatever partial knowledge I have. And it's having the lack of ego to say, nope, actually, you don't understand this. So try hard now to figure out what it is you don't understand. Wow, that hits hard because I've done that before. I'm like, I don't actually fully understand it, but I kind of do. So let's just pass it on. And then you get to a point where you're like, it's kind of thing about like a skyscraper and all the foundation is like weak. So you're at the top mm -hmm. and you're like wobbly and you're like, why don't I understand? It's like, oh, because I'm like, I didn't build the right structure. Now the thing's going to yeah. collapse. So I'm going to collapse. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. I'm embarrassed. It's like you could have just fixed it at the beginning. Now that yeah. goes on to my next question, which is what would you tell people who see, feel like they don't have enough time to learn that. Like they're like, I need to go, I need to get that job. I need to do this. I need to rush, mm. rush life. That's a good question. An obvious answer would be that there is, there is actually more time than you think. Mm -hmm. yeah, that I, I would disagree with the notion that there isn't enough time. And, I, and now I understand that that statement applies to different scales. Cause it might be like, well, I need to deliver this in a week. So it's like, okay, can't really argue with that. You need to deliver it in a week. Yeah. But if you're in it for the long haul, then I would probably say something like, well, okay, mate, get it through that week. 
like do what you need to do to get through that week. But then if you're in this for the long haul, then take the time to figure out because the long haul is, is definitely more than a week or even a month. Like if you're going to be in this for years, then it's going to pay off if you stop and try and figure out what it is that you're struggling with. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a, a helpful answer. <laughs> no, I think it is, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's challenging people's perceptions that they don't have enough time because I think they do. Like you'll be looking at yourself 10 years down the line like, and you will have figured it out in 10 years and you'll think, I think I could have figured this out 10 years ago. What, what was I doing rushing the whole time? That's, yeah. Why was I rushing all the whole time? Yeah. Game design TV students, don't rush. Because that's another thing too. People are like, I, I got to take all these courses. I'm like, just start with the first one. Take as much time as you need, move on to the next one and go on. And you might not even need the rest. You might just be like, I want to make my own game. And then you go on and make your own thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And then another thing, how have you ever gotten stuck in like tutorial hell? Or like, you just keep doing these lessons, but not actually understanding the fundamentals? Or maybe you've passed that. I mean, I think that's a lot of what I've been learning has been definitely learned on the job. So mm -hmm. I kind of pick up the tutorial of something that I need and go from there. I've also been really lucky to be surrounded by people who have always been more experienced than me, which is another piece of advice that isn't an easy thing to act on, but is to try and surround yourself with people who you can learn from. Mm -hmm. um, I've been really lucky at us two games, especially over the development of Monument Valley and as we've been going on, just surrounded by people who would blow my mind with how clever they were. And I would try to ask the right questions and again, put my ego aside. Like even though I thought I was pretty good, mm -hmm. I would then be regularly humbled by just like, oh my God, you understood that and you built it so quickly. And like, I oh, please help me, like, tell me how you did that. Or I don't like having the lack of ego to just say, I don't understand what that is. Mm -hmm. And seeing that almost no one will judge you for saying that. And if they do, they've probably got other problems. So let's let's put that aside. But yeah. it's the kind of thing I've been trying to tell um, anyone I work with, which is that if you don't understand something, ask me for help. There is almost zero chance that I'm going to judge you for asking for help. Like, even if you ask me something as basic as possible, I'll be like, I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, you don't understand that. I'll probably assume something like, OK, well, there's a bit of fundamental knowledge that is a gap for you. Let's try and figure out what that is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Never being afraid to ask for help, I would say. Mm -hmm. I don't remember yeah. what the original question was, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's all good. But yeah, no. That, that's yeah, never key. be the, the smartest person in the room. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Mm -hmm. Facts. Yeah, because actually, in fact, I had a conversation with two new friends who were, you know, into programming, and they are just knowledge about stuff. Helped me understand something so easy, but at first it was like hard for me. I was like, oh, if you, the way you put it that way, I'm, I get it now. And it's like, wow, just having friends who are like programmers help more than having just like a random uh, person who's into like, mm, say, like screenplay writing. It's like, okay, that's really. We have conversations about programming. They're like, I can't really help you with that. It's like, yeah, you really can't. But. <laughs> And it's like, but I, I think the best idea is to surround yourself with people who are in your craft, who are really good at their craft. So that way mm -hmm. you can then learn from them. And then also surround yourself with people who are new in your craft. Mm -hmm. So that way you can then take the concepts you understood from your, like the higher people who understand it, regurgitate it to the people who don't understand it, and make sure that you fully understand it so mm -hmm. that you can let, teach them. Because that's helped yeah. a lot with, with anything. Like I've seen people who are like, hey, let me just do a YouTube video about it. And they like understand it more. And it's also that... um. A different type of like learning type of when you let's say you're in school right you go in a textbook the best way to really understand if you fully solidify the knowledge in your head is to take a step back write down what you did in that lecture or in a textbook or a tutorial and if you can actually explain it without having to go back to video then you understood it 
If you can explain yeah. it to someone else, you've understood it. So take that time. Take the patience, the time, the, the hours you need mm-hmm. to go back and understand what you learned. Otherwise, you're going to move on, like we said before, and not really learn it and then fall down later in Okay, I completely agree. Yeah, often teaching somebody else is a really good way to solidify the learning for yourself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even find holes in your knowledge. As you're teaching it to someone, they ask you a question, you're like, well, actually, I don't know that. So let's try and figure it out. Uh, it's something I've said to people I work with that it's like a win-win situation if you ask someone for help because you're going to find out what they know. But it's also great for the other person because they get an opportunity to teach you. And not only is it good for them because they might solidify their own learning, sometimes it's even nice from a like, it feels good to teach someone and feel the satisfaction of somebody else having benefit from the knowledge you're able to give them. So it's like, it's it's a win-win situation all all around to ask for help when you need it. Also, I think for mental health-wise, I think it's good to surround yourself with both the good the people advanced and the lower people, the, the <laughs> not as advanced, because it helps you feel more confident about your abilities. Because if you continue yeah. to hang out with people who are way above your skill set, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm not good enough, I'm not there yet. But then when you start teaching the people who have the lesser skill set, you're like, wait a minute, I actually understand some things. Mm-hmm. I'm actually good. I just need to keep learning and keep getting keep to that right. point where I'm advanced. So mm-hmm. I think that's another thing which is like, make sure you don't put yourself in a situation where you feel lower, lesser by yourself because you just surround yourself with the greats. Like you'll get there, but there's a gap. Be careful of that yeah. gap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, agreed. One good thing actually, at least for programming, you can probably get a parallel for artists as well, or even musicians as uh just to look back at what you did, like even six months ago. If I look back at my code from six months ago, I find a lot of holes. Yeah, like, absolutely. If you go even like a year, two, you, you realize how much you learned. Mm. I really like looking back at old code and seeing that I approached something a certain way because I probably didn't understand part of it. And I look at it and be like, okay, I, I understand what I was trying to do there and I think I could do it better this time around. So you're right. It does help you to realize just how far you've come on your journey, for sure. Yeah, and, and important, uh, if the project still has updates, uh, fix it. That's true, absolutely. <laughs> I'll just leave it there, yeah. Don't be that guy that finds the issue, doesn't create a ticket, and just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't have time, create a ticket, so at least we look back later on. Mm-hmm. Sharing his internal struggles, Ricardo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would right. I would add to that as well. Uh, if you do find that bug and it's your it's your turn to fix it or whatever that is, is to make sure you understand why the bug is exists. Find the root cause. Even if you've got a fix that can fix the symptom, the only time you should only fix the symptom and move on is if it's really really time critical. And it's like, yeah. well, we need this fix like in 30 minutes. All right, well, apply the fix, and then immediately afterwards, go in and understand why the problem is there. But I only put that in as a caveat. I would say the the number one way to approach it is understand what the problem is for sure. Um, Because game development is filled with the most obscure problems, many of which can be fixed with a plaster. It's like resist the plaster for sure. Yeah, like one good example actually, uh, you can see in RuneScape, like they had this issue with unregistered teleports that you could use teleports that use different code instead of the default teleport code Mm -hmm. and usually you could use it to bug abuse and stuff and like instead of fixing all the teleports whenever they found it they just fixed the ones that had issues (laughs) right (laughs) and so every year or so there's a new bug with like 
unregistered teleport and someone like pops into a cutscene or a instance mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, like killing the, the highest level boss that is, is the solo and in an instance for a level three account and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You're like, that doesn't work. But yeah, be very like keen on the details and, and don't just let things, don't slip them under the rug or like under the refrigerator with ice cube. You gotta make sure you put it down. Hey, this is a problem. Let me fix it later. Like be realistic about things that happen. You don't try, like you said before with the ego, don't let your ego get in the way. Like, oh, if they find out that this is wrong, they're gonna look at me as a bad person. It's like, no, it's a learning opportunity mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity to get someone else who can fix it. That give it them the bug so they can fix it and not let your reputation go down because you thought you might get away with it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Let your ego go. Let everybody know what's going on. Be transparent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Review your own code. Yes. Good one. <laughs> so while you were in school, were you doing a lot of like programming, math classes? Was anything like game related or there wasn't there wasn't really it was i think something like in the first couple of years it was almost all just to do with uh audio technology in general not really any programming and there were some hints of it and it was kind of in the third year that it transitioned more into programming and a lot of it was very kind of high level generic programming principles and it was in my spare time where i was like well let me try and use some of the stuff they've taught us to make things that i'm interested in and a lot of the modules we had were in Flash, and it was kind of making the kind of interactive Flash stuff that you would have seen back in the early 2000s. Um, not necessarily games, but like interactive, cool stuff and visualizations. But I was really interested in the game side of it. So even though we weren't getting taught games, I was trying to make like very simple side-scrolling platformers and stuff in Flash a long time ago. And also the vast majority of that happening outside of university time. Like realizing that the the purpose of university was to introduce me to the subjects and and encourage me to learn how to learn by myself. And then in my own time, basically having so much fun poking different pieces of technology and seeing what comes out the other end. Like me, me and my flatmate at the time would just be trying to do probably quite irresponsible things like attempting to hack websites. Nice. We just we just <laughs> figured out, you know, about what, you know, what is the point of sanitizing inputs on a database or in kind of web form. So, oh, okay, well, let's try injecting some nonsense into a web form and see what happens. And it was, it was not necessarily encouraging people to hack, but the, yeah. the process of it was trying to figure out how technology works. Mm-hmm. And that still drives yeah. me in, in a way. To be That's... fair, if you let the website know, it, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's not a exploit it. That is true. It's a problem. Yeah. I think it's technically I think a crime at the time. Yeah, that's true. I th- I think we actually did at the time. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, you mean don't you let commit them know? crimes. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I think we let them know because it was All in right, the cool. era of there was a website called something like hackers.de or hackits.de, something like that, and it was basically like a website designed with a bunch of hacking challenges, and yeah. so you would progress through levels trying to hack each page. So as we learnt techniques, we would try to apply them elsewhere, and most of them wouldn't work because everyone was up to it. Um, but yeah, I say all that to to illustrate the fact that I learned the vast majority of what I know through exploration in my own time, like just chasing this uh, idea of trying to figure out how technology works and probably also chasing the power trip of being able to control that yourself. Like the, it still feels like a superpower to me that we as game developers are allowed to think of something and then make it and then have other people also experience the thing we made. It's like, it's such a privilege to me, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything more exciting than making games. 
Yeah. yeah. Just making worlds and thinking about the worlds and the yeah. characters. Yeah. Movies play, like play, that. So. Yeah. Play, playing okay, games we'll for me is, world, a, is yeah. a close second. Like maybe making them as a, a number one and number two is just is playing them. Yes. It's weird because I feel that more now as I get older where I'm like, I don't get as much enjoyment as games as I used to. Mm. I get more enjoyment out of creating the worlds and then I'll go and play games that have like amazing worlds. Like this is so much fun. But yeah, it's I got to a point where I'm like, I just want to create stuff and have people experience that. And so but going back to your studying, how did you teach yourself how to, you know, self-learn? Because I think anybody can like study on their own and read a book. But how do you actually learn something where you actually use it later on and it sticks and it becomes useful? I think a really helpful thing for me was to was to not really do tutorials in the void mm-hmm. where I, I'm just going to do this tutorial. I'm just going to make this thing, but I don't really know why I'm making it. Like, I have tried that quite a few times, and the knowledge that I gain in that tutorial rarely sticks, in a way, yeah. which is a shame. Whereas, more often than not, when it's driven by something, then it would stick. And then, more often than not, when I need to do something that's not in that tutorial, or I need to somehow adapt what I've learned in there, that helps me to solidify what I learned in the tutorial. Like I, I had definitely fallen into the trap of like uh, a certain very reusable piece of code that I copy-pasted from somewhere that many people have copy-pasted and used that many times. But then when there's a bug in it or when you need to change somehow fundamentally the functionality, it was a copy-pasted bit of code. So it's now, it's it's like, it's just become a black box again and I'm back to square one. So I think having having a place or a reason for why you're doing a tutorial is definitely really helpful. So I, I would always have some kind of side project running and it's not like i'm saying you need to always put your time into side projects but like having a a bed or a test bed of some kind that you're dropping your ideas into can be a really good way to just make sure the things you're learning actually stick because that is one of the real like sometimes it's you're in the adrenaline rush of a tutorial and it feels really good because you've learned this thing but if it doesn't Mm -hmm. stick um you're not really getting the the value out of it that you could have done so yeah, always yeah. kind of having a tangible reason as to why you're learning something helps it to stick for me. Yeah, and if it doesn't stick, did you ever learn it? Exactly, right? Yeah, it's it's true. It's a painful truth, right? Yeah, it's like so... Rack, racking up tutorials doesn't sound like it has the value that it probably, that you think it might, yeah. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way too. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, it's a thing that you don't, like, I think it was just more my mindset when I was younger, but I was just like, oh, if I do this video, technically I've done it, so mm-hmm. I know the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Why I thought that, I don't know. I think, I think it's kind of school is the thing. Because it's like, the way school works. Yeah, school works. They teach like, you that uh, knowledge is repeating what someone said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just completing tasks just, and being like, I did it. I should know it now, which is not, not true at all. Yeah, because I would, I would also say um, being able to dig deeper on a tutorial is also really good. So like you find one tutorial that does a technique you want that isn't the be all and end all of it. Like I almost see that as a network. Like you start with that and there'll be several nodes in there. Well, like the tutorial says, do this thing. So I'm going to do it. But what is that thing? And if you really don't understand that thing, go from there and create another, you know, open up another tutorial tab or another a Wikipedia page or whatever it is that to figure out the thing that you're looking for. Yeah, and then maybe that in itself has three more things that you don't understand. So it's like, keep, keep trawling that network outwards until all of the child nodes are things that you really fundamentally understand. And maybe that takes ages. Maybe there was one thing you wanted to learn, but now you need to learn 20 things in order to really understand that thing fundamentally. It's, I would really recommend it. And of course there is a logical limit to it, right? Because if you keep going, you'll get all the way back to transistors and like 
Well, how yeah. is it computer built, right? So, of course, yeah. you know. You're like, all right, let me stop here because that's another, like, 100 in shell notes yeah. I don't want to that, deal with. That is also a useful exercise. It's all, that's a really, really cool thing to learn at some point. Um, I started doing a, uh, an online course recently called NAND to Tetris, which is a really, really cool course that starts with, like, well, here's a circuit with a transistor. Uh, you can use this to make a NAND gate. Uh, with complex configurations of NAND gates, you can make Tetris. And I'm like, well, okay. You've got my attention now. Let's, let's wow. see. Wow, what? That's like the fundamentals of kind of electronics and computing. So anyway, all of that just to say that um, find the gaps in your knowledge and ruthlessly tackle them down because it feels really good to to understand things holistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I, I didn't know at the time, but back in high school when a teacher would explain 40 minutes of why we're doing this, it actually matters. Like understanding mm-hmm. why helps you then go, okay, why, how do, am I going to solve this problem? Well, what is the problem at hand? Okay, now I understand all these different like algorithms or you know solutions. This one fits because I understand the difference between this and that. When you just think like, hey, I've used this before in this kind of problem, let me just plug it in here and see if it tries. Kind of like copy and paste code. Mm-hmm. It's like, let me just put this here. You're going to get to a point where like it doesn't work right, it's yeah. not clean, it's not engineered right, people don't understand what you're doing, you mm-hmm. do, like why did you even do this? You're like, I don't know, just copy and paste it. Yeah, yeah. It can be yeah. useful shorthand sometimes, it, it can help you just get to the solution. You're like, okay, this works, but like the problem doesn't stop there. You have something that works now, make sure you understand it and make sure you can, you can write it again if you needed to. Like mm-hmm. one of the things I, I started forcing myself to do was to not allow myself to copy paste code. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be like, well, there's a block here. Like it's eight lines of code and it does the thing I need, but yeah. I'm going to write it. I'm not, I'm not going to allow myself to select it and control V. Like I'm, I'm going to try and type it. Doesn't always oh, work, but, uh, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it it's a technique. <laughs> 99% of the time you try. Okay, so then after college, you went to us two games or what was the time period between that? Yeah, I think I had spent around a year after, after I graduated from from university, kind of doing the, the sort of things that a lot of people do during that phase, which is a lot of it for me was playing video games. A lot of it was playing with Flash, trying to make stuff, um, trying to figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do next? And I was convinced that I was probably going to be a web developer or something and working in Flash. And the opportunity us to came along from a friend of mine that, that I had lived with at university. And he was like, well, they're looking for people who can use Flash here. It doesn't even really matter what you do with it. Can you code Flash? Can you navigate your way around it? And I had initially refused. I was like, um, oh, I'm working at this job in a college right now, and I've only been here for a few months. I don't really want to like leave them behind. But I think he asked me a few times, and he's like, look, I know you like Flash. Just come and join. And so I did. I tried it out, and I didn't have any professional experience doing Flash stuff whatsoever. So my portfolio consisted of things that I'd made at home kind of in my spare time. And thankfully, the people that were there at the time saw something in those things that I made and uh, and took me on. And then the first things I worked on were like uh, action script applications for the old Sony Ericsson phones that used to have the physical keypad and the joystick. Yeah. Um, but an, an interesting kind of aside with the, uh, the flash thing is that the, the main example that I had to show was I had basically tried to recreate Fez because while I was at university, the trailers for Fez had come out and Fez was, is of course an incredible game mm-hmm. but it was taking so long to come out and I'd finished I'd graduated and I was like I was like I really want to play this so I'm just gonna try making this illusion <laughs> so I was using paper vision 3d and flash and I was like authoring quads in 3d just by just by coding out the positions of them 
like hard coding them in Flash, setting up an isometric camera and trying to do the trickery of like perspective flattening. And it kind of worked. And thankfully the people at us too that saw that probably were like, okay, so he's never done this stuff professionally, but he can do this, so maybe let's give him a chance. Um, and it, it's kind of nice that that loops around to making a game like Monument Valley, which is all about optical illusions. And I feel really glad that I had the opportunity to then finally make a game about illusions, which is one of the things I really love. Sorry, I'll, if I if I start talking, I'll keep going off in a direction. So feel free to steer me whichever way you like. You're all good. No, it's good because Carl and I were talking a little bit about the games you worked on earlier, and he was checking out uh, which game did you play, Ricardo? Modern um, Mythalia, the second one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then he's talking about Fez, and I was like, I've never heard of that game. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you he's you pretty were... young. Don't yeah, mind him. Yeah. <laughs> so you made a clone of it, you said? Like a game that's kind of like it? Uh, it, was, it was a very small test where I wanted to recreate the mechanic because mm. the mechanic in the video was really, really cool. So I guess if you, if you haven't played Fez, it's, it looks like a side-scrolling platformer. Okay. With the kind of the structures you see, but then if you can rotate the camera by 90 degrees, and you you realize that you're looking at the side of a 3D structure, and then the right. clever part about that is because you're in 2D, the depth that you have in 3D where objects are further away from each other gets completely flattened. So you're able to, if you were purely in a 3D environment, there's a platform that's way off in the distance. When you flatten the perspective, it looks as if it's right next to where you're standing. So you jump onto that platform switch back again and you're actually way off like 100 meters in the distance and I, I saw that in the video and i was like ah that's so cool i can't wait to play it i graduated the game still wasn't out yet i understand it took a long time to make and it is an incredible game but i just really wanted to play with that mechanic so i guess i had to just try and build it in order to play with it yeah wow that's yeah, awesome you actually uh, touched the suggestion i give a lot of people like instead of trying to make a full game make a mechanic work like implement something make it work play around with it that's a great uh, suggestion you absolutely. don't need to make a full game like mm -hmm. first of all your first game especially if you do it by yourself it's not gonna sell much yeah. just use the time you would waste on making something that probably won't be that good learning something mm -hmm. that will help you make you make something actually good Mm -hmm. eventually that's a, that's a difficult truth to wrestle with that the first few things that you make aren't going to be very good because at that time you haven't made very many things so it's like well this is a hundred percent of what i've made so is a hundred percent of what i make going to be bad and it's like no not really like human beings thankfully we get better at things by just doing them it's such an amazing thing that i i feel like i had to learn like just keep doing something and you get better at it and if you really want to improve that process figure out what to get better at so you can hone in on that but before that point it's okay just keep doing it and you will get better i promise mm -hmm. practice makes perfect and patience yeah. like we can patience. say it again and again and also i think another thing is you have to have focus mm -hmm. so if you want to be a you know programmer do majority of your stuff every day is programming mm -hmm. have like a sket like schedule maybe four hours a day maybe two hours whatever you can do just do that don't worry about anything else it comes first and then you can like do your other things and then even after you get your other things like maybe working out eating right and doing different things then you like okay i can go mess around and do whatever i want to do first they play games but make sure every day you're consistent and you're focusing on one thing just focus 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 because you're trying to do like i want to be a musician i want to be a programmer i want to be the best basketball player best you're gonna you're just gonna put yourself in so many different directions that you're gonna have to feel like you need to rush 
You're not going to have like, the amount of skills that you want for that one craft. Focus mm-hmm. on one thing. Then move on to the next thing when you feel good about it. When you feel comfortable about it. I think this is what most people get confused. They see all these courses. They see all these tutorials online. They see like what's possible. And they're like, I want to do it all in like one year. And it's like, all right. Let's take your time. Let's start off with every week and, and every month. And then eventually yeah. we'll get to where you want to go. But mm-hmm. I think that's a problem most people have. Even I've had, and I think we've all had that problem. It's like, I want to do everything. Don't make wow. Don't try to do everything. Same, mm-hmm. same thing. So. Yeah, I'd say that's a big problem, especially with video games, because you have so many very different areas, like audio, visuals, and programming. Just those three are already, like, at least three, ideally, three different people. Yeah, in, in a large enough team, it could be three different people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's, Large there's, enough, a three-person team. Yeah. Large enough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value in trying to touch each one of those disciplines a certain amount. Um, there's a there's a really good channel. It's I think it's a YouTube channel. I think he's a, a Unity employee. It's called Mix and Jam, mm-hmm. and he takes very well known mechanics from really popular games and recreates them in Unity. And I think some of the the favorite ones of his I've seen are like some of the mechanics from Breath of the Wild, like in Zelda, and they're all quite interesting, clever mechanics. Like he does one with the time stop thing. And uh, he's, I think we created the Celestial Brush from Okami, the PS2 game, which is fantastic. And I think he did one for Monument Valley as well, which is pretty cool. And wow, it's cool that's to see cool. That, that he did it in a, in a slightly different way than the way we did it, but there are similarities in the approach. But for, for that channel, he often takes a completely multidisciplinary approach. So he's writing the code for it, but he's also attempting to create the visual effects, particle effects, shaders. He's getting the audio in there, getting the game feel right. So yeah, it's a really good suggestion to take mechanics over full games if you're really trying to hone your craft. And it's good because it's something you can get done in like a week and then you have something to show for it. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's going to take you 10 years and you realize it's not that good and you have to go back and change stuff mm-hmm. and then 10 more year go, years go by and then you're 85 and you never did anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. But yeah, so during the time between you uh, college and getting um, the job at us two games did you go through any like hard times struggles or not even maybe then but like in your career at so far have you gone through any struggles yeah i mean if i go back to that year i would say like speaking honestly the the entire year felt like a struggle because mm. it's very difficult to get jobs to come out of when you come out yeah. of unity when you come out of uni sorry and um i guess when you're at that age the, the assumption is well you get a degree and you get a job and things are not always as easy as that um, but I knew I really, really enjoyed making stuff. Uh, so that kind of guided me through the whole thing. And I'm really glad that I did take the time to play around with Flash. Um, but I would say if I, if I think more recently, like things that I've really struggled with, for me, it's been the transition from being uh, someone who's just a hands-on creator, programmer, game creator, level designer, whatever the things that I've done, to then being someone who leads a team, because that's my role now. Like I'm a lead mm-hmm. programmer at us two games. And it, it is a difficult transition to make. And I'm, I'm still on that journey, to be fair, is figuring out while well, leading a team becomes a different challenge. Now it's no longer my responsibility to be the person who thinks of a cool thing and then implements it and takes it to its final implementation. So the way I influence the game is to enable a team to create their best work. So that for me has been a big paradigm shift is uh, changing from being the coder to the person who tries to guide the coders. And have, how have you transitioned to that role? You've like learned from books, videos, then the training courses and your job? Um, I would say that the the initial part of that process 
was not as smooth as I would have liked it. It was mostly because I guess the people that I worked with at the time, my leads at the time, we were in a position where I probably was the best fit for the role in terms of the people that we had. So it's like, well, okay, Manish, try being the lead programmer of Monument Valley 2. Let's see how it goes. And I think I had a bad habit of not asking for help early enough. So I, I had allowed myself to get to a certain point of stress and realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm way past my natural threshold of stress. So I'm going to mm. ask for help now. And the kind of thing that really helped me was having really regular one-on-ones with, with my lead at the time and, and really recalibrating what, what was expected of me, both from the project myself, but also from the people that I was surrounded with, like the team who were relying on me to be a lead. I suddenly realized, well, I'm, I need to do them as much of a service as I used to do to try and make the game really good. Um, and it's still in service of making the game good. It's just it's just that I'm now leading a team to do it. So for me, that, that recalibration of, um, yeah, that recalibration was the really important part for me. Mm -hmm. That's good. And then as a leader, what have you learned that comes important and like how to lead a team? Like if somebody was to be in your shoes, what should they mm -hmm. focus on? Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is is treat everyone, not necessarily treat everyone identically. So when, when people say treat everyone equally, that I don't, I no longer interpret that as identical. It is interpret who the individual is and treat them in a way that's according to them. Uh, certain people like longer conversations and they like things to go a bit more in depth. And that's where they're really comfortable and that's where they open up. Some people don't like that. Some people just like to tell you as much information as you need to know or as they need to know and that's enough. And they just be like, all right, cool. I'm ready to get back on with it now. Like, let's cut this conversation short. So it's it's realizing that every person is an individual and take them for the individual that they are. Um, I usually find that with the different people I've managed, a new person comes along and they'll surprise me with whatever their personality is. And I'm like, okay, well, that's that's another personality filed off in my brain. Uh, and then I'll meet another person and they've got a completely different personality. So I'm like, okay, well, I think I'm just going to be forever surprised by the newness of people. So that's how I begin. I'm like, right, this is going to be a new person. Let's let's start as an open slate. Like, who are you? Let's have a let's have a working relationship. Yeah, I think that can be a pretty hard thing for people coming from a more technical field like mm -hmm. IT programming, and then starting to manage people. Like, people aren't computers; they are different exactly. from each other. People are and not computers, definitely. Like pro, uh, programmers yet. who transition into, yeah, not yet. <laughs> programmers <laughs> who transition into lead positions often have to learn that the, the hard way. Yeah, but uh, I think that has something to do as well with uh, some lack of soft skills I notice in a lot of people in the more technical fields as well. Mm -hmm. Also, another good thing, if you want to work for a big team, you want to do cool stuff with a bunch of people, like work in a triple A or even not even triple A, just n not on your own. Learn how to talk to people, like treat them nicely, mm -hmm. give them help and ask for help. Like, yeah, communi communication is a very valuable okay. skill, both both spoken and written. Like yeah. for me, what, one of the things I really tried to do recently is communicate as unambiguously as possible. And try and make it make sure that the thing I was thinking of and the thing I was trying to say is the thing that lands in the other person's brain, because mm. it's very easy for that not to happen. And then you're blindsided later because they thought something else. And I thought I said something else. And rather than trying to get into the problem of whose fault that is, 
um, just try and work on communication being as unambiguous as possible. And that often involves like checking with someone that they did understand what you've said. Or the inverse, which I often do quite a lot of times when someone's explained something to me quite complicated, is I will in the moment try and paraphrase it back to them. And I'll often realize while I'm paraphrasing it that I haven't understood something. Or they'll realize, oh, he hasn't understood something. So I do need to reiterate this part. So yeah, communication absolutely is, is a very important skill. Mm -hmm. I think with uh, taking ownership, like you were saying, like not blaming whose fault it was, is I think all leaders, or actually anybody really, should take like ownership of whatever they mm -hmm. are doing. So if let's say your job is to explain this to someone, there's no need to be like, oh, why explain it to him? He should have known. It should be like, yeah. I should have explained it in a way where he understood it. And I should have followed up with them. Like, I think people should never... Like sure, people could be blamed, but I think everybody should have the opportunity to say, "Hey, how could I buy? How could I have improved? How could I have explained things better so mm -hmm. that way, like I cover my back? I've mm -hmm. established all types of possible, you know, different ways that he could have understood it instead of just blaming it. Just I think the idea of blaming or they're taking your fault from you is like it's just it's very immature yeah. and very it's not really helping anyone, and it's just again protecting you from something that your ego wants to protect. But not. Nah, mm -hmm. so yeah. I really like the idea of this conversation with ego it's helped like bring out that they, this ego is not a very good thing to have and you have to understand and be self-aware about it which i think it's hard because nobody really talks about that like oh check your ego it's like what i nobody what no seriously like to understand your ego how your brain works how you work and to understand that these things can inf like affect your career could affect your relationships mm -hmm. So yeah, check your ego. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a problem with phrases like that, right? Is that they have a very, very useful and specific meaning. And so the first time you learn it, it maybe has a lot of power because it conveys the fact that your ego gets in the way. But then when it gets overused, it starts to lose its meaning. And now it's just a cliche. And you'll say, check your ego to someone. And they're not actually understanding the thing you're trying to tell them. So I've been trying to identify that recently when there are certain phrases that feel like they've lost their memory, uh, lost their meaning for some reason. Like it's a cloth that's that you can start to see through it because it's threadbare or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, I'm even though I want to use that phrase because it's a shorthand, I'm not going to use that phrase. I'm going to describe the meaning of that phrase to somebody, wait for it to land, and then I really know it's landed. Because yeah, check your ego is another one. I feel like if someone says that, yeah, because it's such an overused phrase, I'm suddenly thinking, wait a minute, are they are they are they saying it for impact? Like what are they trying to say here? So yeah. Yeah, it usually feels like an mean. insult. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but the message is so important, right? And so mm -hmm. it's the message that we want to convey. For yeah. sure. Exactly. There was a, a game designer at Naughty Dog named Liz Fiatro, and she even said that they when they decide on who's going to come work for them, even if they find a program who's the best program ever was, a 3D model is the best 3D model. If there's that candidate who's like a little bit like less skilled, but is way better communicating, way better working with teams, they're going to choose that one because mm -hmm. they need someone who can work well with the team mm -hmm. who explain ideas as well. So. Mm -hmm. Again, communication and teamwork and being friendly really matter. Don't mm. ever be like, "Oh, I'm the best in the room. Screw all you people." It's like that. Yeah. If you if work. you could if you could enumerate the value of all those points, like maybe this is a very programmery talk, but the value of communication shouldn't mm -hmm. be underestimated. So maybe if you took the total value of that person, their technical skills plus their communication skills, it might have been like double what the other person had. Like, mm -hmm. like the the value of communication as a currency is really really high. So I totally, I totally agree with you. And it shouldn't be seen as a like, well, they're actually less than that one because communication is, is incredible if you get it right, definitely. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and like we are working on a field that has tons of people who can kind of do the work. Mm -hmm. You can pick 
the one that fits the team. So mm-hmm. try to be the one that fits the team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how, what do you see as like the, the number one uh, example of someone fitting the team? Is it someone who understands other people, who is empathetic, who likes to work like, what should someone strive to be to be that person? Mm-hmm. I think that, that it's the balance of so many of these things, which is where we often find like the best in life, right? Um, it probably it sounds very cheesy, but it's why a phrase like yin yang has existed for so long, because having balance is so powerful. And of course, in some ways, if you want to min max, that's fine. And maybe you are the person who is you're so incredibly great at the tech thing that you do that you can get away with not having communication skills. That's fine. But I also think that that is it can almost be an excuse sometimes because I have seen people grow in places where other people assume that, ah, well, they're probably not going to improve in that sphere or that's just them. That's just who they are. And then you take the effort to improve that and you see them improve. You go, well, okay, it is possible. So yeah, I think the balance of communication and technical skill and just interpersonal ability is, is it cannot be understated. It cannot be overstated. I think that's the word, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's not just the career benefit. Like it's not just because you get a better job, like being actually part of a team, it's way better than mm-hmm. just being the annoying guy they ask some stuff. <laughs> from mm-hmm. sometimes yeah yeah there's, there's huge satisfaction in being part of a functional team and respecting each other and feeling when other people have got your back like i mean there's there's just as much satisfaction in having someone's back as someone also backing you up it's it's really great so yeah teamwork i love it mm-hmm. it's one it's one of my favorite things about us two games just the the makeup of people there i i, I love it i'm constantly surprised by people who do things that i can't do um, just that's one of my favorite things about about working in games. It's awesome here. Yeah, it's always great to be around supportive people, mm-hmm. a great company that actually cares and treats everyone right. Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah. So can you tell a little bit more about us two games? Like, what has been the journey like there? Yeah. So us two is actually a like a global design company, and around when I joined, which was two thousand eight, I think we were just doing kind of digital products. Uh, we had a couple of studios around, and it was in the London studio that there was this urge to try and make things that were not for clients to make our own IP projects. And it was out of that that the games got born. And I was doing client work at the time and seeing that this little team of like three or four people was starting to make games. And and a lot of them had not really seen any kind of commercial success in the early days. And I think the earliest one that did see a tiny bit of success and probably still quite a lot is a, a game called Whale Trail, which was basically an endless runner where you're making a whale fly through the sky. And it was shortly after that that I sidestepped from doing client projects into the game side. Um, and it was from there that we started growing projects like Bliplop, like I mentioned, and then Monument Valley. And it was after the, for me, really unsurprising success of Monument Valley. Like I was just trying to make a game that I thought was really cool with this group of people that I liked. And suddenly it was this global success. It was after that that we were able to then pivot and Us2 Games was able to break out into its own company. So we're still under the Us2 umbrella. And us mm. still makes fantastic digital products from like medical stuff to automobile stuff all over the world. Um, but we also have us two games under the same umbrella. And so now we are, I think, 30 people and we are dedicated just to making games that we love. It's all our own IP. So we're all trying to come up with things ourselves and then just turn them into games that people can love. Awesome. And for working at the company and being a programmer, what is the kind of daily schedule life? It was like, like not lead programmer, but like when you were just like a gameplay programmer, mm-hmm. what was like the daily routine like? 
Yeah, it was often, uh, we, we've always tried to work in agile, so things would be set up into sprints. So depending on where you are in the sprint, it could be different. It could be like, well, okay, this is just a normal day in the middle of a sprint. So I've already been, I already know what's in the sprint. I've already got an idea of my tasks. So I might just get straight in and immediately like get the headphones on, open Unity and start cracking away at whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, or it might be a collaborative task. Like some of the stuff on Monument Valley was collaborative level design. So we're trying to think of a level idea. We'll work on it together. So maybe we kick off with that. So it was in the days of kind of gameplay side, it was thankfully almost all just getting my head into engine, figuring out what I want to build and trying to make the best version of it as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, I guess nowadays in the lead programmer world, it's, it's often transitioned into, right, I'm going to talk to who's in the team. I already know this person uh, wanted to check in on something. So cool, let's jump on a video call, especially now in the uh, in the remote world. In fact, now mm -hmm. in the remote world, it's more a case of managing Slack, managing the influx of mm -hmm. communication and wanting to be able to give people the right amount of time. Um, a trick that I do in Slack a lot, which I really like, is even if I read something immediately, I will mark it as unread and then I'll leave it there. So my Slack notifications have basically always got a number in them. And mm. then I'll just, when I then have another 15 minutes free, I'll go and clear out one or two of those notifications and reply to a person and give them some information they need. But yeah, now now it's very much information transfer, at least at this point. Mm -hmm. That's really important. You have to make sure everyone understands what is happening, what's going on, because if they yeah. don't, we get lost, and then we get something that we did not want because nobody was sure what they were doing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So in the game process, what... How, what has been like one of your favorite moments creating these games that you guys created? Yeah, I think if I think back to all the games we've made, like I love all the things we've made, but there was a specific phase in Land's End, which is a mm. game that we made for VR, which was okay. for the Gear VR, um, where for a portion of that, my focus was basically just audio. So I worked with very closely with the sound designer and musician on that game, a guy called Todd Baker, who mm. has now done a bunch of work on Dreams, um, he, he's a fantastic person to work with and for I think it was a few months we basically just worked on the sound together and I did any of the implementation he needed and I would play through the game multiple times I would just play the whole thing take notes of everything that I thought didn't sound good and then I'll go in and try and fix them and talk to Todd about it and then I'd play it again and I would just make another list of all the things and it was quite a short game and that's that's one of the things we do so I do have the luxury with most of our games of being able to just play it and make a list of things that I don't like. Um, so I think Land's End was five chapters and it's maybe like a 45 minute playtime. So I could basically take 45 minutes, get the headphones on, put the VR headset on and just be able to take notes of all the things like, okay, I heard that, that wasn't quite right. Take the headset off, write it down, put the headset back on. Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorite um, phases of game development, that, that period of time where yeah. my responsibility was make this game sound good. And there's this incredible sound designer musician that you also get to work with. So that's that's one of my favorite periods. That sounds like a lot of fun playing yeah, a game. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, so we're near the end of our podcast, and we like to do this uh, challenge. Like all our courses have challenges at the end of the lectures. So can you come up with a little small challenge for the game to that TV students to do after the podcast? Could be anything. It may, could be program related, like do a programming Ooh, challenge or something. But yeah, okay. so you have as much time as you need to think of the challenge and. I mean, I've, I've got one immediately because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And okay. um, I'll pull it from something that we have in Alba. So the game that we just released, Alba, a wildlife adventure. Um, you play a little girl called Alba and she is in a natural island. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of wildlife. 
And early on in the game, uh, your grandparents give you a smartphone that you use in the game. So, yeah. so it's uh, it's like it, it plays like a third person kind of over the shoulder sort of moving around game. But when you're playing on phone and you and you you enter the smartphone, you can use your gyro to look around and actually use yes. it like a camera and take pictures of animals. So it's not only taking pictures of them, but you can also scan them. Mm-hmm. So the the challenge there is when you point the camera at one of the animals to detect what animal you're pointing at. So that's one thing that I think, you know, that's if really people, if, yeah, if people have used Unity, um, I mean, we made the game in Unity, um, and you want to point a camera or a vector at something and try and figure out what that object is, there are some ways of doing that if you're just using regular mesh renderers. But we're using skinned mesh renderers for our animals. And skinned mesh renderers cannot have mesh colliders applied to them. So you can't simply use the same physics raycast thing that you would do to collide against some object. So that is the challenge. How do you point at a skinned mesh renderer and and identify the renderer that you're looking at? Um, That's a challenge that we tried like four or five different techniques. And we did ship with one final technique. And maybe if you're interested at some point, I can talk about what that is. But that would be a challenge, an interesting challenge to put out to people. Uh, there are there are assets on the asset store, so that's probably cheating. So give give it a go. Like think about what the different mm-hmm. approaches might. Be. Yeah, no, I think it's a great one because you get, it challenges them to really go in there, think about something, implement it, and then yeah, of course we can always get you back on to talk about the solutions you came up with. And, yes, no worries. Yeah, yeah, but that'll be later down the road when we get into that. But uh, but yeah, so this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on, Manesh. This was so much fun. We learned a Thank lot. You for of course. And uh, we'd like to end it off by heading, giving you the mic to say any last-minute quotes, any shout-outs, anything you'd like to say. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, and the mic's all yours. Thank you. I think I probably just did with talking about Alba, but that's the last game we developed. Um, one of the things at Us Two Games is we really like to make games that bring what's great about games to people who might not have experienced it. So we try and make our games as inclusionary as possible. So Monument Valley is a great example of a game you can just give it to someone who can use a smartphone. If they can use a smartphone, they can play our game. So I urge everyone to check out our games. I hope people really enjoy them and please enjoy the craft of game development more than anything else. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all courses at gamedev.tv or in the show notes at a discounted price. Get started with your game development journey today.